0: To Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Let's pray as we get into God's Word today. Holy Spirit, uh, we are all depending on you to speak today. We pray that you would come and you would illuminate your scriptures to us. Pray that you would soften our hearts where they've become hardened, especially to the gospel, Lord. That for those of us who are depending on our own works, And we would see our shortcomings and we would turn to Jesus. And those of us who are living in sin, we would forsake that and trust in you to save us. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen. All right, we are in part nine of our 52-part series uh, this year. Uh, And I just love saying that, so I like to say it every time I get to preach. Uh, we're, if you're having as much fun in this series as Pastor Bill and I, then you're enjoying it. Uh, this is a year of focusing on Jesus. We're calling it Centered. So it's a year looking at His life, His teachings, His miracles, His parables, types of Christ in the Old Testament, and it's just been a blast. And today I want to start um, by just giving you a little mental exercise, a little quiz. I'm going to ask you several pairs of questions. And uh, question A is going to relate to one type of person, and question B is going to relate to the other type of person, okay? So there's two categories of people, and I want you to kind of go back and, and maybe into your past before you met Christ, and and uh, for those of you who aren't Christians today, maybe this will describe you where you're at right now. Um, for all of us, this will this will say where we are bent one way or another, um, and so uh, just listen to these questions and see where you're bent, Where which side do you tend towards um, as we go along here. So Uh, Question number one, how many of you love to keep the rules? You're just Mr. or Mrs. Rulebook. Uh, I played baseball with a kid like this, my next-door neighbor. He used to hate it because he always had a rule for everything. And he just always had to play exactly by the rules, and and he was the authority on everything. And maybe that's you today. You just love rules. You love guidelines, and you love to keep them, and, and you hate it when people try to deviate from them. Usually, you marry people like this, the people that love to break them. Um, how many of you love to break the rules? You just, every time you see a rule, somebody puts a rule out there, and it's like that, that dastardly red button. you just got to push it. you just got to break the rule. It was made to be broken. And so you just, you just feel this immediate compulsion, like I should just go do that since somebody told me not to. How many of you are like that? Question number two. How many of you feel like you're trying hard to be good? You just, you just kind of always feel like you're striving, like you're trying to, trying to achieve some level of goodness. Versus those of you who are trying hard to just have fun. I mean, you're just always looking for that next thrill, that next big thing, that next adventure, that next pleasure, that next excitement. How many of you like to conform? You like to go along with the crowd. You don't like to ruffle the waters. You don't like to stand out. You don't like to be too different. You just like to kind of do things by the book. Uh, Versus how many of you um, like to be different? You're kind of the nonconformists. You're the hippie indie rockers. You know? you, nothing that you have, literally, can be the same as anyone else. So you shop at different stores. You, you have different art in your house. You've got to be completely different than anybody else. You can't go along with anything anybody else does. How many of you think conservative is a good word? Some of you cringe there. That, that means that you think liberal is a good, good word and you think conservative is a bad word. So how many of you think liberal is a good word? This will, this will tell you what kind of a person you are here. It's going to be important for today. How many of you are focused on achieving and accomplishing in life? You just have this desire to get things done. You, you like to, to conquer a task and, and you're out there and you, you have to feel this sense of accomplishment. Versus those of you that say, hey, What are we doing trying to accomplish so much stuff? Let's just enjoy life, you know? What are we, why why are we so uptight here? Let's just relax and have a good time. How many of you are after status in life? If you say, there's one big thing that I could have. I want people to think well of me. I want people to look up to me. Versus those of you that are after pleasure. You're like, I don't give a rip what people think about me. I just want to have a good time. I just want to have a thrill. I just want to go go along for the ride. How many of you today would describe yourself as a good person versus those of you that would describe yourself today as a fun or a free person? What I've just described for you are the two basic categories of people in the world and how we go about finding life. Um, the first category that I described is something we could call moral conformity. You could also call it the religious type or the self-righteous type. It's that you find life by obeying the rules, by following the rules. That's how you feel good about yourself, by doing the right thing. Okay? And the second type is what you'd call the self-discovery people um, or the rebellious people or the unrighteous people. You find life by saying, how do I have the most fun, the most enjoyment that I possibly can, and I don't care what I have to do to get it. I don't care if it's wrong or not. If it's fun, do it. If it feels good, do it. Just do it. That's your motto. These are the two basic kinds of people, and I don't know about you, but I've spent time in both categories in my life. And maybe you, you can think about your life and, and you think, yeah, uh, maybe I, I'm, I bent towards this one, but we tend to spend time in both categories, and our natural tendency is to jump from one category to the, to the next. You know, I grew up a pretty good religious kid. Um, always going to church, always going to Sunday school, learning the catechism, learning the right things to say and do. And I thought fundamentally that it was going to get me further ahead in life by doing the right thing. And those of you who are moral conformists, those of you who are religious, you feel that. You feel like it may not be that you're doing your good things for Jesus, but it's like, I feel like it's going to get me further ahead. I'm going to, while those other people are off wasting their time and their lives trying to have fun, I'm going to be getting further ahead. And they'll see how stupid they are in the end and how awesome I am. And it'll be, there's, there's going to be this big payoff. Okay? So I spent most of my time as that religious kid, but then at, there were was, was spots of my, my life where um, it showed me that my, my obedience wasn't really for Christ, but it was for my own self, for my own righteousness, because I would suddenly forsake all the laws and just have a good time. I would just sin freely and just flip over to being the, the rebellious type. And some of you have seen people like that. The, the most common place we see people do these kind of flip-flops is in college. How many of you have seen that? You, uh, um, you, know, you, you see the really religious kid come to college, and they've been in this you know, uh, really buttoned-up, really tight religious family their whole life, and they get to college, and all of a sudden there's no rules, there's no mom and dad telling you what to do, and you're like, uh-oh, look out. Uh, I mean, I had friends in college that when they first came to college, they rebuked me for saying crap, you know, things like that. They were just so religious, and they were just so, so stuck on being perfect, and, and, and it wasn't long before they tasted just a little bit of freedom, and all of a sudden, these people were breaking every commandment in one night, and I was like, you need to slow down, you're going to die, you know? They, they shifted so immediately from being the religious person to being the rebellious person, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. And on the other hand, you have those rebellious people that they've been at every party. They've been strung out. They've been in rehab. um, You know, they wake up with a lampshade on their head every night. And and those kind of people all of a sudden have this shift to becoming really religious. And it's amazing how they can do that in such a short period of time. All of a sudden, these people that you knew lived this one way. All of a sudden, they're going, I can't believe that person would do that. Oh, I can't. Did you see so-and-so what they were wearing? And oh my goodness, their behavior is just appalling. I mean, I haven't done that for a long time. It's been like a week and a half (laughs) since I did that. And they just flip right over and you're like, hey, where did this come from? I mean, seriously. The great news here, friends, is that no matter who you are in here today, if you're religious or if you're rebellious, moral conformist or self-discovery, Jesus came to rescue both types of people. Jesus came to rescue both of us. So no matter what you've done or haven't done, no matter how much you've kept the rules or haven't kept any of them, if you're in here today and you're Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way, or if, you know, you've broken every single commandment, you're like, Pastor Dave, there's nothing left in the Bible for me to break. It's all been broken. It doesn't matter. Because Jesus came to rescue both of us types of people, and that's what we're going to see here today in John and in the next couple weeks. um, John's gospel is written for the express purpose that John would show everybody, Jews and Gentiles alike, that Jesus Christ came to give people life, that he is the Christ. He wants people to know he is the Lord. He is Christ, and he came to give people life, and isn't that what we've all been looking for anyways? We all want to have life, and that's why we do what we do. That's why we go towards um, a religious expression. That's why we go to self-discovery, because we just want to find life. And John's purpose in writing his gospel, where we're going to be today, is that you would understand that your life is not in self-discovery, and it's not in religion. It's in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see a huge contrast in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Today we're going to be in chapter 3. Next week you're going to hear an amazing sermon from Pastor Bill on chapter 4. I had to put that little plug in there. But today you're going to see the religious guy, okay? And, 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 and then next week you're going to see an entire contrast. You're going to see the totally rebellious person, the Samaritan woman at the well. Today's going to be the Pharisee. But there's something that we need to learn from both people, and it's so amazing to watch Jesus take a totally different approach with both people. So here we go. We're going to meet Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus is our guy today as we go along here, I want you to look at three things. I want you to notice three things Um, specifically. I want you to, I want to unpack a little bit about who Nicodemus is, okay? It's important for you to see who he is so that you understand the significance of what Jesus says he needs, okay? So number one, I want you to see who Nicodemus is and how we're all like him in some ways, and then I want you to see what Jesus says that he needs and what we need, and then I want you to see what Jesus, uh, or how Jesus says he's supposed to get what he needs, Okay, so who he is, what he needs, and how he's going to get it. Who we are, what we need, and how do we get it. Here we go. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, this tells us a lot about Nicodemus right there. He's a Pharisee. The word Pharisee in Aramaic literally means pure and separated. Okay, so he's a part of a group of guys that are just, they're just flawless. I mean, outwardly, these guys... They're, they're like some of you. I mean, sometimes I, I picture some of you sinning, and I just can't do it. I mean, I try to. I'm like, I just can't picture them doing anything wrong um, because you just seem really just that sweet. Well, Nicodemus, outwardly, nobody had seen him sin because he was faultless. I mean, this guy was legit as far as his works righteousness goes. All right, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council, so that tells us that he's probably older You don't get to be a part of the Sanhedrin as a young person, usually. Um, He's very well-educated. As we know, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, um, educated under the guy Gamaliel. So he was very well-educated. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, probably had memorized several books of the Old Testament. We're not talking about verses here. We're talking about memorized several books of the Old Testament, especially the Torah. Okay? Um, the Pharisees were, were more concerned with religion than politics, unlike the Sadducees. The Sadducees were more concerned with politics than religion. Um, the Pharisees would have been the conservative guys, conservative use of Scripture, and, and we need to hear this, Life Church, because we're conservative in our use of Scripture. But they were so conservative with Scripture to a fault that they couldn't, they, it, it blinded them eventually. They were kind of the literalists, the biblicists. They were the guys saying, we've got to have a literal interpretation of Scripture. Okay, So this is who Nicodemus is. Now, uh, this guy is so um, well-kept and so in love with the rules, I want to read a couple of these rules that Nicodemus would have held to. Okay? This guy is a pillar of the Jewish community and a shining example of moral excellence. Here's a couple of uh, Sabbath rules. Now, this is just one rule. The Pharisees had hundreds of rules about rules. And if you get your life from obeying rules, that's why you come up with more and more rules because you don't just want a vague description of a rule. You want a very specific outline so that you know whether or not you've been good enough. If your righteousness is based on obeying the rules, you want to make sure that you're doing it right. So the Sabbath commandment is... Honor the Lord, honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In it, you shall do no work. Okay. Well, that's not good enough to them. Listen to what they listen to. What they went to the lengths they went to, and I'll show you how it even has impact on today in the Jewish culture today. A tailor or somebody who is working with um, clothing was advised to put down his needle a half hour before sunset, the night before the Sabbath, lest he inadvertently carry it in on the Sabbath while searching for fleas in his cloth. You know, heaven forbid he should carry his needle in because that would be work. It'd be carrying something. Additionally, the rabbis carefully distinguished between wearing and carrying. They had to decide if a woman's hair clip, for instance, was worn or carried. If carried, then it would be a burden and forbidden on the Sabbath day. So as you go out, Pastor Bill will be by the door, ladies, and he is going to examine your hair clips. If they're worn, you're good. If they're carried, you'll have to go home and change them uh, before discipleship class. So we talked about that earlier. Um, this, this is kind of the crazy stuff that they would get into. And you remember John chapter 5 when the Pharisees rebuke the guy that just got healed. He was crippled. He couldn't walk for many, many years. And Jesus heals him and says, take up your mat and walk. Well, we all say, hey, that's a great story. Look at what Jesus did for this guy. What a miracle. The Pharisee says, hey, bro, what are you doing? What day is it? You're carrying your mat. Put it down, man. They're, they're just, they don't even care about the miracle. Like, hey, haven't you been like, crippled for 20 years? They're like, you are carrying something on the Sabbath day. I can't believe this. I'm, you know, you need, to, you need to shape up, boy. Not, not, you know, not thinking about the fact that he couldn't carry anything for 20 years. Listen to how these play themselves out now, nowadays, okay? So with the advancement of modern technology, the rules have gotten stricter, okay? And this is what happens for religious-type people. They have to get stricter and stricter and stricter because their righteousness is based on them. It's based completely on their own works. Maybe you're religious in here today and you need to hear this. Um, Sabbath laws have evolved into this. To open a refrigerator door on the Sabbath, one must first disconnect the interior light before the Sabbath day, lest one violate the injunction against kindling. As modern interpretations consider that using or turning on a light comes under the category of kindling. Letting warm air into the refrigerator also creates a problem because that will cause the compressor to activate before it otherwise would have. This would cause the compressor to spark, also a Sabbath violation. Therefore, one has a timer installed to run the compressor motor at set intervals rather than a thermostat, which the door's opening would indirectly affect. Another proposed solution, just open the door when the compressor is already running. Okay? So you can see how this is getting to be a little bit of a pain in the butt. Now, uh, it also affects, um, it also affects uh, medical profession. Okay? This is um, from Dr. Abraham Abrahams in his, list, uh, uh, in his comprehensive guide to medical halakha. This is an exception to the Sabbath law. He says, If one does have to suspend Sabbath rules for a higher principle, such as care of the very ill, one must do so with the least possible intrusion into the Sabbath laws. Also, one must perform any act that would otherwise transgress the Sabbath in an unusual manner, thus acknowledging Sabbath law. For instance, and this is not a joke, friends. Just listen to this. A doctor. So Dr. Olson, sometimes he gets called away for an emergency. Um, May drive on the Sabbath if he must go to an emergency, but he should not start the engine by turning the key with two. Fi- but he should start the engine by turning the key with two fingers, not the usual thumb and forefinger. So, Dr. Olson, we'll be, you know, expecting that you use the two-finger method from here on out. The two-finger method is is standard. Uh, you can't do anything in the usual way. Okay. Now, additionally, as to the ve- vehicle driven to the emergency, the doctor must leave the motor running as turning off the engine is not necessary to save life. So if if you drive by the hospital and you see Dr. Olson's car running on Sunday, you just smile and give him a thumbs up. Because he's got to leave it running the whole time he's there. It's not necessary to turn that bad boy off. If a doctor has to write, he must write with his left hand, if right-handed and vice versa, as if their handwriting isn't bad enough. He's He's supposed to switch hands on the Sabbath day. So basically, on the Sabbath day, you won't be able to read anything they write. <laughs> He's supposed to use the minimum number of words possible and sign with his initials, not his full name. A nurse, so Amber Jackman, please pay close attention. A nurse or doctor applying an antiseptic to the skin on the Sabbath must use a non-absorbent nylon swab as opposed to cotton which could absorb the medication and thus presumably be classified as working under the rubric of dying, as in dying cloths. So please make sure the swabs are nylon and not cotton, Amber, on the Sabbath next time you go to work on a Sunday. Do you you understand this? Jesus rebukes the Pharisees one place because he says, you guys are tithing out of your spice rack. You know, as I was preparing for today, I realized that Jenny and I got this beautiful spice rack for Christmas. And yet never once have I come in and given a tenth of my coriander and my sage and my thyme and my dill. But they would do that. If they got a spice rack for Christmas, they would divide each spice out, one tenth, put it in a bag, and bring it to the the temple leaders, and they would say, great, what do I do with this? You know, thanks a lot. I'm glad you feel better about yourself. I'm going to throw this in the trash. You know, but they were just so strict. This is who Nicodemus is. All right, it's important for you to see. This is the most righteous guy that Jesus could pick to say what he's about to say to him. He's as clean as they get. He's clean with a capital C. All right, he's just... He's just completely buttoned up, completely tight. You cannot find anything that this guy has done wrong. And let's look at how Jesus interacts with him, okay? So verse 2. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. Basically, Nicodemus is saying, hey, we, meaning the rest of the Pharisees and I, we agree you're a teacher, Okay. He's not coming to Jesus for eternal life. He's not seeking spiritually. He's just saying, hey, we get you're a teacher, man. You probably came from God or you couldn't do all this cool stuff. And so we're teachers, so maybe we can work together. That's kind of what Nicodemus is saying here. And then he comes to verse 3. This is Jesus' reply, and watch what he says to him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, at first that seems like Jesus is switching the subject, doesn't it? Nicodemus says, "Hey, we know you're a teacher, you came from God." And Jesus says, "Tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again." At first you're like, Jesus just stay with the conversation. You know? I mean, he, he kind of he said something you should respond to it, but Jesus is responding to it. See, what Nicodemus has said here is, "You're just a teacher." You're just a teacher. And what Jesus is saying back to him, in the next 17 verses, we're going to see how Jesus just goes after this idea that he's just a teacher. And his express purpose is to say, Nicodemus, if you're, you don't need another teacher, man, you got all the teaching you need. But if you're going to continue to see me as just a teacher and I'm not a savior, if I'm just a teacher that's going to tell you how to be more moral so you can save yourself and I'm not your savior who's done everything for you, you can never be born again. And for the next 17 verses, he barely lets Nicodemus get a word in edgewise because he's hammering this home to a learned man, a good man, a guy that we would say he's got everything together. And this is what Jesus comes to him and he says, He says, You need to be born again. You need to start all over. You can't even see unless you start all over. Think of how significant that is. Jesus says, You need to start all over, Nicodemus. I know you've done everything right. I know you're extremely moral. You're extremely learned, but unless you start completely over at the beginning, with the pimps and the prostitutes, you can't come in. See how offensive that is to a guy that's keeping all the rules? You need to start all over. You can't even see my kingdom. You can't even see God's kingdom unless you start back at the beginning. Now, isn't that beautiful for those? Of that's why Christianity's always been so much more attractive to the down and outers. To the, to, the, to the people that have been licentious and lawless, is because it's, it's the message that we all start at the same spot. We all start by being born again through Jesus Christ. Christianity is not a battery for your old life. It's not just, you just get an add-on to what you're already doing. It's something entirely new. We all start from the same starting position, being born again. So it doesn't matter if you've been addicted to crack for 15 years and never done one good thing. You start from the same place, as Nicodemus, who's always lived good and righteous and upright, who's kept the law nearly perfectly on the outside. You start at the same spot. This is why the gospel is so much easier for people who have messed up to accept. It's harder for you religious folks, because you're like, you mean none of that stuff counts at all? Nope. You got to start over. It doesn't count until after you get in. And then it's not, it doesn't count for your merit at all. It just says you love God and you understand what he did for you. you getting this? So Jesus says, you need to start all over or you can't even see. Now think about that for a second. This, this idea that unless you're born again, you can't even begin to see. Think about a baby. Okay? The baby a baby is born and they come out and uh, usually the doctor slaps them on the butt and they scream and they open their eyes and light hits their eyes for the first time and they begin to see a whole new world. That's what new birth does. You see differently. You see a whole new world. That's why you can give a baby a toy, the dullest of objects, and they'll play with it for hours. Because I've never seen a set of keys before. I've never seen this ball before. I've never seen this toy stuff bear before. I just look at this for hours. they're just mesmerized by it because they're seeing a whole different world. And that's the way it is with a Christian. Your eyes are open like the Apostle Paul. You see things entirely different. You see God's plan to make everything new. You see with a different joy. You see with a different hope. Second Corinthians 5.17 says that those who are in Christ are now a new creation. And some translations say there is a new creation. In other words, you're seeing everything brand new. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says, We are given new birth into a living hope. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, unless you'll stop coming to me as a teacher and start coming to me as a savior, you can never be born again, and then you'll never begin to even see with the hope that you're meant to see with. They never even begin. Martin Luther has a cool testimony about this, the great reformer. I want you to hear it. Um, we're studying Martin Luther in my uh, church history class um, from the Reformation to the present, and, and Luther was just, he was, he was totally a Nicodemus. I mean, he kept all the rules, and he repented of every sin that he could think of and over and over again, and he was a diligent Augustinian monk. I mean, this guy was self-righteous, but he says himself he wasn't a Christian. He was extremely religious, but he wasn't a Christian. And he says this, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Luther was terrified of God because he thought he was this great big judge that wanted to beat him with a stick. He says, because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust, my situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. And neither should you, honestly. None of you should have any confidence that your merit can assuage God. He said, therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. This is is one of the founding fathers of of the Protestant church. He said, I murmured and hated against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. He says, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. It's about faith. It's not about works. The light bulb went on. He said, then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. You're justified through faith, people. He said, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. See, he's seeing with new eyes. Whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. That's what Martin Luther said about his experience of being born again. That God turned a light bulb on It wasn't overly emotional necessarily, but it was that he began to see. That's something that you'll know the way you're you're reborn when you start to see differently. You start to see that you can't do it. You start to see that it's not about your works, but it's about what God did. And Jesus is saying here to this morally upright person, Nicodemus, he says, It doesn't matter how pure you are. It doesn't matter how perfect you are. You're still blind to my kingdom. Unless you're born again. Unless you start all over like a little baby. Now, naturally, verse 4. Nicodemus is confused. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And all the mothers said, amen, because who would want to go through that again? You know? So Jesus is going to explain it. He's, Jesus answered in verse 5. He says, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Water in the Spirit simply means, Jesus is saying, you can't be born again, or the way you're born again is by being born up from above. That's what that means. You're born of God. In other words, he's saying, Nicodemus, you need something, and it's something that you can't do for yourself. You need God for this. I know you're used to doing everything for yourself. I know you're used to keeping all the rules and achieving your own righteousness. And I know you like to do that, but you can't do this. You can't make yourself born again. And now Nicodemus should have understood this. He's a teacher of the law. He's a teacher of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament talks about how God would do this, prophesied how God would do this through Jesus Christ. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 is what Jesus is referring to. I don't think I gave you this one, Amber, but I'll read it for you. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. Yahweh says, "I will through the prophet Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. How many of you feel that today? I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God is saying, I'm going to do this. This is not something you can do for yourself. You can't just go fix yourself. Your spiritual condition is too bad. It's too lost. It's too bankrupt. I'm going to have to plant my spirit in you. And I'm going to have to make the way for that, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. But Nicodemus still doesn't get it, so Jesus explains further in verse 6. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, and spirit gives birth to spirit. Verse 7, Jesus says, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. What he's saying here is, hey, Nicodemus, you shouldn't be surprised when I say you must be born again. You shouldn't be surprised at this, that the Spirit can do something just because you can't see it. He says, you see the effects of the Spirit? It's just like the wind, Nicodemus. And some commentators think that Nicodemus came to Jesus on a windy, stormy night. And so Jesus is just saying, it's just like the wind, Nicodemus. Look at the trees. How do you know there's wind there? Well, you see them blowing the leaves and blowing the branches. So with the Spirit. So with anybody born of the Spirit. You don't necessarily see the Spirit working in their heart, but you can tell because there's real transformation in their life. Their life changes. They're different. They're all of a sudden a different person. And see, this is where it gets a little confusing for Christians because some Christians will tell you that you need to fix yourself up and change yourself so that you can be saved. Or at least that's the way it comes across. But Christianity says that you can't do any real change unless God saves you first. Unless God comes in you with his spirit, so you receive his spirit, like we, like we already sang, like Jack prayed today, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That happens first. And then, by the power of his indwelling spirit, you change. It's like two trees. Okay, think of this. You have one tree that's full of leaves and fruit, and one tree that's just dead and bare. Okay? And you, you would never go up to the tree full of leaves and fruit and say, my... Look at that fruit and those leaves. They must be giving the tree life. No. You'd say the, the fact that it has so much fruit and such green leaves is evidence that the tree is alive and planted in good soil. And that soil is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. It's what gives a believer life and the spirit is what enables them to produce good fruit. Okay? Likewise, you would never say, look at that tree, it's dead. Um, it must be dead because it doesn't You know, it doesn't have fruit, and obviously the fruit would give it life. No, it because it doesn't have fruit, it is dead. It's the opposite way. Okay? And that's the way Christians think of it. We think of it like we're not saved by our works, um, but we do good works because we've been saved. All right. Martin Luther said that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Does that make sense? Um, there's a great testimony of, of this personal change that the Spirit produces in, in someone's life in St. Augustine, who was one of the great church fathers. And, and some of you need to hear this in here because um, Augustine, as a young man, was basically a, a, a sex uh, addict. I mean, from all I can, I can tell about him reading his confessions, he, he just struggled with his sexual appetite so greatly and just battled it. And then he had this radical conversion experience, and then the Holy Spirit began making him new. And then he talks about one time where he had a run-in with one of his former mistresses, okay? And um, Augustine is so gut-honest in his uh, confessions, you've got to read them sometime. But uh, this is one of the great fathers of the church in the fourth century. And he runs into one of his old mistresses, and uh, he talks about how he was cordial and warm and friendly with her, but then he just went on his way. And she was like, maybe he didn't recognize that it's me, because this was a different guy. You know, he looks the same outwardly, you know, he was friendly and stuff, but maybe he just didn't see it was me. And so she goes to him as he's walking past, she goes, Augustine, it is I. And he turns back and he says, yes, but it is not I. He's different. He's totally different. Why? Because the work of the Spirit. The Spirit has changed him, made him new. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, hey, how come you don't believe this? How come you don't believe the new birth of the Spirit? Just because you can't see it, Nicodemus, that's no reason to doubt it. You believe in the wind. You see the effects of it. You see the change in someone's life. All right? Some of you here that are struggling today, you need to, you need to have renewed hope because the Spirit can change you. It won't happen necessarily on your timetable, um, but God will change you. The, holy, the power of the indwelling Christ is the only thing that can put the collar on the thing that's in us. All right? Let's go on to verse 9. Nicodemus is again confused. Enough said. Verse 10. Jesus is now confused because of Nicodemus' confusion. He says, you're Israel's teacher. How co- I don't get it, said Jesus. And, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify of what we've seen, but still your people, meaning you Pharisees, do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Then we get to verse 13, and don't miss this, friends. This is very important. Jesus is going to make a strong claim to his divinity. He's going to be like, You got to see this, Nicodemus. You think I'm just a teacher? You got another thing coming. He says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So he says, Nicodemus, remember that time just a a couple minutes ago you said, We think you're a great teacher and you came from God? Yeah, you have no idea. I used to live in heaven. I, I am God, actually. Okay? And, and he, Jesus' favorite nickname for himself is the Son of Man. And then he goes on to tell this little story, or to reference this little story that Nicodemus would have known well because he's a teacher of the law in verse 14. He said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, so Jesus, we've seen who Nicodemus is. Jesus tells him what he needs. That's new birth. We've seen a little bit about how that happens, and now Jesus tells him how he's going to get the new birth. And he uses this interesting little story from Numbers chapter 21. Now, some of you might be saying, why is Jesus talking about snakes in the desert? You know, this doesn't make any sense. Well, you've got to remember who he's talking to. He's talking to a very learned man, a teacher of the Old Testament. He probably hadn't memorized these books. So Jesus is saying, hey, Nicodemus, do you remember that story about Moses in the desert with the snakes? And he's like, yeah, yeah. Well, the story goes that the people of Israel were grumbling against God. They're like, we hate this desert, we hate sand, we hate how hot it is, we hate the food you've given us, we hate that there's no water. God, we think you stink, basically in a nice way is what they were saying, okay? And uh, that's the VeggieTales version, okay? It was probably a lot worse than that. So God gets angry and says, I'm sick of this, and he sends snakes to bite them. That was his judgment on them. And so these poisonous snakes come into the camp and they start biting the people and the people start dying and they cry out to God for mercy. So then God relents and he says, okay, I'll have mercy on them. Moses, take a pole and he does this, has them do this really weird thing. Take this pole, wrap, up, make a bronze servant on the top of this pole, put it in the center of the camp and then whenever the people look at it and believe in me, they'll be healed instantly. And This story doesn't make sense if you don't understand it through Jesus. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, that story is about me. It's about the Son of Man. It's about me. See, just as the snake was lifted up on the pole, so I'll be lifted up. And just as when people looked to the snake and believed, they were healed of the poison that was inside of them. So when I'm lifted up and people look to me and believe in me as the Son of God, so they'll be healed from the poison that's inside them. Jesus Christ is saying, I'm the way, Nicodemus, to be born again. He goes on. Verse 16, this is a verse nobody's heard of. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So to recap, this is what Jesus has said to this. He's taken this this upright, moral man who's just so clean and so pure, And all of us would probably just be so tempted to just butter him up and think, wow, this guy's just the greatest. And this guy comes to Jesus and says, hey, you're a good teacher. He compliments him. And Jesus says, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. If that's all I am to you, if I'm just a teacher and I'm never your savior, you can never be born again. He tells this upright moral man, you're going to have to start over if you're even going to begin to see the kingdom. You need to be born again. What does that mean? Well, it's not a natural birth, Nicodemus. This is something that God is going to have to do. You can't do this. You can't make yourself be born again. You need God. And oh, by the way, I'm God. And by the way, I'm the way. The only way to be born again. It's by looking to me for your Savior. As your Savior. It's by looking to me for eternal life. This is where you find new life. It's only in me. That's That's what Jesus has done in this short section of verses. Now, to put it a different way and to close with this. Jesus says something really interesting in John chapter 16. And I, and this is, I want to I'll mention this because we're sticking with this, ta- this idea of new birth. Okay? Jesus says something interesting to his disciples. Um, in verse 16, Jesus says to his disciples, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me. And then his disciples, being the bright guys that they were, said, what did he mean when he said, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a while you'll see me? And then Jesus comes back and says, are you guys wondering what I meant when I said in a little while you'll see me no more, and after a while you'll see me? That's literally what it does. And then then they go, yeah, what does that mean? And Jesus says, well, here's what it means. He says in verse 20, I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And this is it, verse 21. This is powerful when you realize this. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. That phrase there, because her time has come, Jesus uses that over and over and over, talking about his death. My time has not come. My time has come. My hour has come. Same thing. Because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Let's think about birth for a second and what Jesus is talking about here. How he's telling us that we can be born again. He says, babies, they're not born on their own, are they, moms? You know, maybe we wish that they were. Um, but they're, they're definitely not born on their own. It, it takes a lot of labor. There's a reason why we call that labor. Um, babies do participate in the birth, but they're, they're not born on their own. It takes someone else. It takes the labor and the pain and the suffering of another for a baby to be born. For someone to have new life, for, for new birth to come about, it takes the labor and pain and suffering of a mother. Now, we have to understand the context of which Jesus is talking. Back in that day, there was no such thing as epidurals. Every birth was painful, period. Okay? But not only that, every birth was extremely risky to the life of the mother. I mean, it was literally to get pregnant was literally like playing Russian roulette with your life for a mom that many women died in childbirth. And this is not, you know, new. I mean, 200 years ago, it was the same way. Um, It's just been the modern advances of medicine that that has, for the most part, been ruled out. We don't think about, you know, mothers dying so much anymore. But what Jesus is saying to us here, what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, um, just as a mother gives new life to her baby, just as she gives new birth to a baby through her own pain and at the risk of her very life, So I am going to give you new birth through great pain and suffering of my own and at the cost of my very life. So Jesus is saying here, I'm just like the mother. I'm just like the mother. And friends, that's the gospel. You can't do it. You can't do it. You need Jesus. You need his suffering and his pain and his labor that he went through on the cross with his death You need that in order to be born again. That's the way he gives life to you at the cost of his very life. See, friends, Jesus is not your teacher who tells you how to be new. He's not your teacher who tells you how to be more moral so that you can save yourself by your good works. No. He is your savior. The the one that you must look to. Look to him and him alone in order to be born again. Give you new life and forgiveness of sins. Maybe you're here today and, and you're like um, Nicodemus and you've been trying so hard to keep all the rules and do everything right and, and to uh, obey just perfectly so that God would love you and be pleased with you and take you to heaven. Maybe you know, uh, you believe uh, that you're getting close to God. You know, on the outside, you look great. You're, you're just so put together, but on the inside, you're still dark. The truth of the matter is that you're not moving closer towards God, you're moving away from him. You're actually moving further from him. Flannery O'Connor is famous for her novel uh, where she describes a boy who had this very problem. She says, the boy didn't need to hear it. There was already a deep black wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Some of you, that's your issue here today. You're avoiding Jesus by avoiding sin. You're saying, as long as I don't sin, I don't have no need for him. As long as I don't mess up, I don't have to humble myself. But see, Christianity is a faith where we all have to start at the same humble spot. I'm in need. I got nothing. My arms are empty, Jesus. I'm bankrupt. I need to be born again. I can only do that looking to you. If you're here today and and you're like what Flannery O'Connor describes, you... You're avoiding Jesus by avoiding sin, I would, I would encourage you, you're never going to get there doing what you're doing. Give it up. Come to Jesus and be born again. Be born again by the Spirit. Let Him give you new life. Trust Jesus for your salvation in Him alone. Stop trusting in your own good works. Maybe you're here and you're like, "Hey, I'm from the total other camp. I'm the opposite of Nicodemus. I've done everything wrong." Um, I've, told, I've screwed up in every possible way, Pastor Dave. You would, uh, you would fall over if you knew what I've done. Well, the first thing that you need to watch out for is that when you're convicted of your sin, the enemy's going to tell you that you just need to go fix yourself. That you need to go clean yourself up before you can come to God. You need to have some sort of self-salvation project. You need, you need to be a bit more presentable. He'll say things like, there's no way those, those people would accept you. There's no way God would accept you coming like you are. You're so filthy. You're, you're such a rotten, dirty sinner. And nothing could be farther from the truth. Jesus came for you. You're going to see that really clearly next week. You'll see it really clearly next week. But isn't this great news for you? I mean, what Jesus is saying here to you, if you've broken every commandment, he's saying, you're starting right where Nicodemus is. Just come and be born again. Start new. You're not behind. You're not second class. You're not one lower on the totem pole. You're starting just where everyone else needs to start. Friends, here's my prayer for you. My prayer is that all of us would continue to look to Jesus for new life in the power of the Spirit, that we be born again in him. Amen.